Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm one of the hosts, Alejandra Bronfman, and I've just finished speaking with Elizabeth Maddock Dillon, author of New World Drama, The Performative Commons in the Atlantic World, 1649 to 1849, published in 2014 by Duke University Press. This terrific book remaps the connections among London, Charleston, Kingston, and New York through its exploration of the archives generated by theater and performance. Beyond text, the archives includes gesture, sound, movement, and object, and it yields fresh ways to think about the making of Atlantic publics at the height of slavery and colonialism. Hello, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for being with me today. Hello. Thank you. My pleasure. So I really enjoyed a lot of this book. I, I enjoyed almost every single page. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderfully complicated book. And in a lot of ways, I think that the contribution that it makes is in thinking about slavery, economic enclosures, the creation of a public or a people, and colonialism all in the same frame. And I think that that's really innovative. And that it's done, the fact that it's done also through theater and performance also opens up a path that is less about texts or commodities, although you do talk about those, and more about bodies, gestures, sounds, Etc. So, can you talk a little bit about how you came to think about those as connected to one another? Well, uh, thank you for those kind words. I appreciate them. Um, the uh, the The project began um, in thinking about the theater in early America. So, I uh, was trained as an early Americanist, and um, and when I was trained as a literary scholar in early American studies. It was sort of the era of Sack Van Berkovich and Perry Miller. And in that world, um, Boston and New England is really the center of the universe and the origin of America. And as I was working on um, different materials, I discovered that there was a, a pretty rich history of theater in early America that really hadn't been discussed at all by literary critics. And the reason for that is that most of the theater that was performed prior to, say, 1830 in the United States was um, written by British authors and often performed by British actors. And what that meant was that for literary scholars, it couldn't be, that couldn't be considered American literature. So despite the fact that thousands upon thousands of people went to the theater, that people memorized lines from the theater, that the theater sort of pervaded the vernacular of everyday life, and people even died in the streets over theater. Uh, It had disappeared from our sense of what literary culture or even um, culture was in that early period. So um, I, one of the things that made this book possible is the new direction that the field of early American studies has taken towards an Atlantic understanding of the field. Um, because once you look at it as Atlantic, then it's sort of no longer off the table to talk about 
productions of Shakespeare in early America or productions of Sheridan or so forth. And as I looked at the theater in early America, um, one of the first things that interested me was the fact that the I learned that Continental Congress had outlawed theater uh, um, prior to the revolution um, because it was considered essentially a British luxury good. It was outlawed together with um, expensive funerals and cockfighting, <laughs> um, which <laughs> were both considered ways you weren't supposed to spend your money. Um, but what that meant was that the, the primary theater company in the uh, North America at the time, the so-called American company, decamped to Jamaica for eight years um, until after the revolution when theater was then again made legal um, in what was now the United States. And so I thought that was kind of fascinating. And um, as I looked at it, this very different map emerged of what theater looked like. So you have uh, uh, the primary company in, in North America is comprised of British actors who are as at home in Jamaica as they are in New York or Baltimore or um, Philadelphia. And um, once I started looking more closely at what was going on in the theater, it, it just became clear that it was a very, very different space than what we currently think of as a theater. So um, one of the things that uh, was going on at the theater, well, one way to understand the theater is that it was much more like a sporting event would be today than, um, than the way we think of the theater. So the theater, uh, uh, an, an evening at the theater would last for many hours. It would include uh, a play followed by an interact of rope dancing or pantomime followed by another play. And during this whole evening, people would come and go and talk and eat. Um, and they w were also very interactive with what was going on in the stage. So they would yell at the actors. They would, um, if they uh, thought that the manager had miscast an actor, they would scream um, and and complain if they liked a song, they would ask the actor to repeat it three or four times. Um, and it became clear to me that there was a very different sense of what the theater meant um, and that there was a sense of um, uh, what one critic has called audience sovereignty. And um, as I looked into the, uh, you know, so, so you have this kind of mix of this very different geography than we've typically looked at, one that's very Atlantic um, in the 17th and 18th century, and, um, and the theater as a very different space that is about um, creating a kind of uh, collective, uh, a kind of collective voice. Um, so people who attended the theater really thought of it as a space where, as I argue in the book, where they are performing themselves as a collective. Um, so it wasn't understood as a kind of privatized space, but a much more public space. Um, so those are, you can get a sense then of some of the moving pieces um, in response to your uh, question. <laughs> That's yeah. a long answer, but Absol those are a few of the components. Absolutely. And the chapters do kind of follow an itinerary that goes from London through Charleston, Kingston, and New York. And I want to get to those in a in a minute, but I do want to just talk a little bit more about the framing of the book because I found some of the elements really fascinating. And as you say, w one of the things that this book really does is 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 
demonstrate the stakes and how high those stakes were in the performances. And you do that in a lot of ways, even in, in the, in the opening and the closing. So the opening of the book starts with an an execution, a public execution of Charles I in London in 1649. And it closes with the riots uh, in New York city, the Astor place riots in 1849. And those again, hold the key elements of the things in the book, the, the notion of performance, the notion of violence, the notion of the commons, uh, and this entity that is, you at times you call it the public, sometimes it's the multitude, the people, but this sense of um, a, a group of people coming together. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about those events as the chronological, and you've talked about the spatial boundaries, but those events as the chronological boundaries. Yes, yeah, so the, the notion of... Um, Audience sovereignty is um, uh, is an important one because um, what I what I came to think of as going on in part in the um, in the theater was a question about the performance of um, uh, of the sovereignty of the people. Right. So um, the historical dates there from 1649 to 1849 are really meant to frame the question of what it means to have popular sovereignty, um, for popular sovereignty to be enacted in this space of the Atlantic world. And the beheading of Charles I, I take as the the, the moment, uh, a kind of origin moment for popular sovereignty. Now, I, I don't mean to make make that argument in a strict sense. There's, a, an, a, of course, a complex history of the emergence of popular sovereignty, but it was a very spectacular, theatricalized moment when the head of Charles I left his shoulders. I think there were many people who thought that the world would end um, at, at that moment, but but it didn't. And it was the moment when the parliament declared that the power of government was vested in the commons, the common people of England. Um, And so at that moment, then we have a question, which is how do you represent the sovereignty of the people? How do you represent popular sovereignty? So we have a long tradition of what it means to represent monarchical sovereignty. And certainly monarchs were very invested in, in performing um, that version of authority and power um, and uh, statehood. Um, and that begs the question of how do we think about, how, how do we understand, perform, participate in popular sovereignty? And m- my argument is the theater was a kind of central site for doing that. So 1649 is a, is a very appropriate theatrical starting point for considering what it means to perform popular sovereignty. Um, 1849, the end point uh, of the Astor Place riot is, um, I mean, in in some respects it has a nice symmetry with the the violence of um, the beheading of um, Charles I. Um, It is a moment um, when 26 people are killed in the streets of New York City um, by the um, uh, the National Guard was called out um, 
and over a riot that was taking place over a performance of Macbeth with a question of who should be performing the lead role of Macbeth, a British actor or an American actor. And there's been a lot of work done on the Astor Place riot. So, um, uh, and, and there's a complex history there, but I take it as my end point in part because um, it's a moment that uh, Lawrence Levine has identified as uh, he pinpoints the Astor Place riot as a moment when we begin to see the division of highbrow and lowbrow culture. Um, it's a moment when the sense of the theater as being a space where all portions of the town are allowed to be present and enact their presence um, seems to be shut down. So there's a there's a moment, I would argue, around um, that point of the privatization of the audience. So when we think of theater today as being a kind of um, elite, uh, fancy, um, uh, as they said about the Astor Place, uh, a white uh, white kid glove audience, um, 1849 marks a moment when um, that shift takes place. So the theater is... Um, less and less uh, a collective space for public sovereignty and more a space for private entertainment. Right. And so I think that related to that is this notion of the performative commons, which is in your subtitle. And you, you suggest that you are going to move, you move to the performative commons rather than this notion of a public sphere, which is really and I think what you're doing is a really important rethinking of the notion of the public sphere. So can you talk us through a little bit your critique of the idea of the public sphere and uh, and tell us what, what a performative commons is? Sure. The, uh, the public sphere um, model, uh, of course, comes from primarily from uh, Jürgen Habermas's account of the public sphere, but it's also had a lot of sway in the field of literary studies um, it, with the notion of the print public sphere. And um, my uh, my first book was actually about the uh, literary public sphere, about the print public sphere and gender and politics liberalism. Uh, and so it was a, uh, a mode that I had been working in. And as I looked at the theater, I was trying to think about what kind of public what's the role of the theater in the public sphere? And I initially um, was interested in the context, uh, arrived at the term embodied public sphere to try to think about what was going on at the, um, at the theater. Um, but the distinction between being in print and being embodied uh, didn't in the end um, capture what was going on at the theater. In other words, I don't think it's that simple between saying like, oh, there's, a, there's an abstract print public sphere and there, then there's embodied presence, which is really different. Um, in part because the theater is shaped by scripts. People are working from print printed scripts um, and are also uh, present to one another. So, um, so initially I had that term embodied public sphere. Um, the second the second way, and then there are two two more issues that sort of move me towards this notion of perform, performative commons. One was that in theories of the public sphere, um, Habermasian public sphere, the, the public sphere is really formed in relationship to the state, 
So the public sphere is a is a place where the public is able to gather and debate, um, whether that be in print or at coffee houses, um, and to offer a critique of the state. And um, my uh, my work in the Atlantic world. It didn't. It didn't fit that model because the question of the state, the question of the nation state, was never so stable. Um, so, how do you talk about a public when you don't have um, the nation state as the sort of um, uh, addressee slash interlocutor with that public? Um, so, so, so I was in this much more, I would say, much more amorphous. Um, space of the Atlantic world that is shaped by um, uh, imperialism um, as well as the kind of on the ground dynamics of um, um, indigenous um, indigenous peoples in the Americas um, and enslaved Africans um, and then my my third sense um, about the public sphere is that the and I felt this way for a long time that that there's always a kind of magic circle around the public sphere, um, so that the question of who's in the public sphere and who's not in the public sphere is one that often kind of tends to drop off the radar, um, so that we imagine that the public sphere can just be expanded um, uh, if it just becomes more liberal, right? Um, but that that very sense of the public sphere as being bounded as having a sphere um, tends to, I think, kind of structurally uh, um, erase um, parts of parts of history, peoples from history. So particularly when you have a notion like the print public sphere, um, the people who get erased are, if you're looking at a particularly in English, are non-English speakers um, people who are not literate in English, people who do not have access to printing presses. And the theater is a location where all of those people were present and were able to perform their presence in ways that were not dependent on print, not dependent on the nation, and did not have a, a sort of um, bounded set of who could be included and who couldn't be included. So um, the performative commons then emerged as a way of thinking about what was going on at the theater as a kind of site of a, a production of um, of a public, but also of a collective, of a commons. Um, so, and I should add finally one more sort of vein of thought that led me towards thinking about performative commons rather than the public sphere is that I became very interested in the the relationship between the history of the enclosure of the commons and the creation of the theater as a site of performing the commons. Um, that is cultural culture as itself a kind of commons. Um, and in some of the readings of the plays that I do, particularly um, the um, uh, um, the reading of the um, McKeith uh, and the Beggar's Opera. Um, I argue that the theater is itself attempting to kind of generate a commons on the ground, um, and so for all of those reasons, performative commons seem to name much more accurately the kind of um, uh, 
on the ground, as I was saying, generation of uh, collectivities and publics that was at stake in the theater in the Atlantic world. Right. And that leads me actually to the last question I want to ask you before we dive into the chapters, which is the about the central contradiction of the book, which is in, in some ways the simultaneous erasure and centrality of both Africans as enslaved people and indigenous people, right? So they're necessary, but it's also necessary to erase them at certain points. And I really liked the way that you brought that kind of contradiction into conversation with ideas about theater and performance and tax and, and, and those kinds of issues. So can you talk just a little bit about how you came to that contradiction as one of the organizing themes of the book? Yes. So one of the first things that I realized when I uh, started working on theater, in fact, one of the things that led me to it and, um, when I was looking at early American performance, the, the, the first play that I uh, wrote about was one, it's not in the book, but it was an article I wrote prior to the book, is about Susanna Rosen's play, Slaves in Algiers, which is about um, some British and Americans who are held as um, captives in the, in the so-called Barbary captivity crisis. And um, so they're held in uh, North Africa. And, um, and many people take this as a kind of um, uh, anti-slavery um, text, which uh, I'm not so clear that it is myself, but I was surprised as I as I started looking at these plays about the fact that there were so many um, non-white, non-English, non-American figures who were being performed on stage. So, and because you would you would think from the again, from the kind of literary history that we've had over the years, when you have that literary history where it's primarily, the authors are primarily white men, you would you might think, oh, well, that was probably true. That was primarily white men and white women on the stage. But in fact, it, it, it wasn't. It may have been white men and women playing those actors, but playing those characters, but the characters were included um, Indians, uh, Moors, Africans, um, uh, enslaved peoples. Uh, and so one of my questions is why, um, why was it so important to have these figures on the stage? And so one of the things that I hope I do in the book is demonstrate that in fact, these, these figures of native Americans and of Africans, new world Africans on stage were not, um, this, this was not window dressing, so to speak. It was not incidental that you have characters like Orinoco or Metamora or Montezuma um, who are central to um, a long theatrical history. So then my next question was, well, if, if these, if these characters, what are these characters doing on stage, right? What, what, is, what is going on? Why is it so important to represent them if at the same time what's going on is um, the uh, um, genocide of Native Americans and indigenous peoples in the Americas and the enslavement and um, consignment to social death of enslaved Africans in the New World. So how can we understand that contradiction? Why do they need to be present and not present at the same time? And 
so one of my arguments is is that um, enslaved Africans and Native Americans were absolutely crucial to the economic system that arose out of the Atlantic world. Um, that it was the labor of slaves. It was the um, and it was the theft of Native American lands uh, that enabled capitalist modernity to um, develop out of the 18th century Atlantic world. And the theater, um, it seemed to me, was actually a site where this, this problem of the necessary presence and the necessary absence of um, Native Americans and Africans was being worked out um, uh, at one and the same time. Yeah, and actually that that relates really nicely to the next thing that I was ta- was going to ask you about if we start to move into the chapters. So you start out in London, and a lot of the argument happens through analysis of the plots of some of these performances. And the London chapter, one of the things I found very striking about it was the, the way that you explore the theme of torture and its relationship to the legitimacy of rule for the British. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how that works. Sure. So the um, the London chapter uh, started with um, an interest in in a play by um, uh, William Davenant called "The Cruelty of the Indians in Peru." I'm sorry, "The Cruelty of the Spaniards in Peru." Um, and what was particularly interesting to me about um, Davenant's play. Uh, was that this was a play that was produced under the under Cromwell under the protectorate? So the story that we have of theater um, history is that the Puritans closed the theater um, under Cromwell, and it, the theater only reopened again under um, Charles II during the Restoration. Um, so we have a you know a, a huge account of Restoration theater, and the theater then is associated with the monarchy and um, not with the uh, with the republic um, and part of the part of the burden of my argument or the interest in my argument is is making the case that after the death of Charles the first and that is during the interregnum there there is an interest in this question of how do you represent the people um, what does the collectivity of the people look like and William Davenant was able to persuade Cromwell to um, allow several performances to go forward, performances of his. And a number of these performances are directly about um, Native Americans in the New World and the torture of Native, Native Americans in the New World by the Spaniards. So I became particularly interested in the question of why does the representation of popular sovereignty in England require uh, reference to torture, the torture of Native Americans in the New World. And, um, and I do want to make the case that it does, that, th- that that's not an incidental relation. There actually is something important going on there. Um, and the argument that, that, um, that I present is that the that torture has a particular relationship to popular sovereignty. 
And that relationship is, um, it's, it's spelled out nicely by um, a theorist named Paul Kahn, who I draw on, as well as a woman named um, Lisa Hajar, um, do some really interesting work on this. Um, but the argument is that when, when the people are sovereign, um, then the people as a body uh, need to um, uh, repulse all threats from that body. And the um, torture victim is uh, the, the, the person who is thrown out of the people um, and their torture is um, performing the torture of Native Americans by the Spanish um, indicates, one, that the English uh, have the rightful, um, have rightful access to the New World because they're not torturers. And it consolidates the body of the collective body of the English um, sitting in the theater as a, an untortured body, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It does make sense. And what I found really interesting about that argument is that it really takes this idea of the black legend, which we often read about, but doesn't have any much by way of kind of legs. It really takes it in and gives it a concrete sort of scene and, 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 uh, a way that it was performed and understood by, by British people. Right. So I, I found that really interesting. And it was actually quite astounding to me as I dug into these materials, the extent to which um, Davenant's play <clears throat> is literally playing out the words of Cromwell in his discussion of the Western design and in his discussion of um, what it means for England to, um, uh, to be a, a republic or to be a sovereign people. So Cromwell is, is, is simultaneously trying to think about how um, the state has authority not under a monarch and to think about how England has authority to take over um, land in the new world. And that, that simultaneity requires <clears throat> this sense of the people um, acted out through the torture of Native Americans. Right. It's a contradiction that does that seems difficult at first, but in the end it makes a lot of sense and it has resonances even, I, I would argue, today, actually. Um, it, it, do, it does. And the Paul Kahn, for instance, is, is it, the theories that I'm drawing on from him are, are about Abu Ghraib, for instance. But right. um, So the resonance is very, uh, is very striking. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in the chapter on, on transportation, the method of the book is to really think about plays, and you've talked about this a little bit as kind of assemblages, right, of bodies, words, spaces, and objects like music or costumes. And so they're at once, they're texts, they're performances in which the audience also participates, and they're also forces in historical change. So all of these aspects come into your narrative. And the, the chapter on transportation hinges in a lot of ways around this, this play, The Beggar's Opera. And so I'm wondering what it was about this play and what kinds of, and the kinds of repercussions that you trace in that chapter. So The Beggar's Opera is particularly interesting to me because um, it has to do with this question of enclosure, right? Um, Michael Denning has written a wonderful piece many years ago about um, the, the fact that the 
ground of that opera really does have to do with the Black Acts and with the uh, politics of enclosure. So the Black Acts are the, the moment when um, the criminalization of the um, hunting and um, using what were formerly the, the commons of England are being protested by the so-called Waltham Blacks who black up their faces to, um, uh, to hunt and also to um, uh, destroy the uh, fences and so forth that are enclosing what was formerly the common property in England. And Beggar's Opera is about the thief, McKeith, and um, his efforts to uh, stay out of jail and to um, have access to as many women as he can in the process. And the play was, um, was, was sort of the first mega hit of the theater ever. It, it was astoundingly popular and made its way into every nook and cranny of culture so that everyone knew who McKeith was. Everyone, um, was, uh, singing along to the songs. Everyone, um, it, it, it just saturated the culture of the period. And what, um, what, what struck me uh, initially about the play was the fact that while it was about this kind of the theft of property by the Whigs from the people and the effort to undermine that through McKee's thievery, that the play itself was creating a, a cultural commons. And so one of the most important things about Beggar's Opera is that it's the first ballad opera so it's the first opera at the time there was a rage for Italian opera in England and Beggar's Opera was first of all not an Italian uh, and second of all the um, the tunes were folk tunes that were that were um, the words were put to the tune of existing folk tunes and um, so one of the arguments that I make is that when um, theater goers went to the theater to hear the beggar's opera, they already knew the tunes that the songs were, um, that the words were put to, that the ballads were put to. So there was a way in which they were already viscerally participating in the, um, in the opera, in the music. So I think of it as a kind of like that, that old game show named that tune that <laughs> you can imagine that as a song started, people in the audience would think, Oh, I know that one. Um, and, and start um, mentally kind of humming along. Um, and, and I felt like this, that, that, that um, generic innovation coupled with the content of the play uh, was really making the case for how theater could function as a kind of um, collective cultural commons. And then, of course, McKeith gets pardoned at the end of the play from his death sentence um, because the rabble, uh, which is to say the people, insists that he shouldn't be killed. And so that seemed to be a, a moment of um, literally cultural commoning in which um, uh, the people take over a space through again, this kind of visceral mode of uh, song and dance uh, enabled to affect a, um, uh, 
a, a presencing, a kind of judicial overturn of Whig property theft. Yeah, and opening up the the analysis to all of those parts is is I think it's it's really fruitful, um, and it, it works at so many different levels. So um, in the chapter on Charleston, Charleston becomes this kind of place that is connected to the Atlantic world in really fascinating ways. And so one of the repercussions, in fact, that you talk about a lot is the Haitian Revolution and the arrival of the French and, importantly, of French theater, right? So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the implications of that. And, and especially you, you, you really emphasize in that chapter the presence of bodies of color in the newly assembled, what you call the newly assembled public. And so I wonder if you can take us through a little bit what happened, what happened in Charleston and why that's important to your narrative. Mm-hmm. So the, the transportation ch- chapter, there's, there's a, you know, a little bit of a pun in that term because the, um, the punishment that is assigned to McKeith ultimately and to, um, and to many people in England is the punishment of transportation as well as, and in fact, that punishment of transportation, namely transportation to the new world is one that um, spurred in part the Waltham blacks because the um, poor people who were, whose land was being taken away from them by the enclosure acts uh, when they were, um, uh, you know, when they were punished um, judicially, for <clears throat> transgressing the the black acts the um that punishment was transportation um and at the same time i'm tracking the transportation of beggars opera uh to loc- locales around the atlantic including charleston and um the north american colonies and so forth so the theater is being um transported and it's at that moment when the first um the, the American company is formed in England and starts touring the Atlantic world. Um, so Charleston is one of the key sites where theater really develops in, um, in North America. And the reason for that is because Charleston is rich. You have theater where, where you have money and Charleston is rich because of their, um, slave economy. Um, the, uh, one notable thing about Charleston um, unlike any other colony in um, North America, is that there was a majority black population in in the state of South Carolina. Um, and the Charleston chapter opens with the fact that the play Orinoco was scheduled to be performed there, but was canceled by an edict from the governor um, forbidding it to be performed because Orinoco is a... Um, Includes a slave revolt in the uh, in the in the performance, um, which one can imagine it, the, the governor does not say why it's canceled, but one can imagine that with a majority black population, you would not necessarily want to perform a stage a slave revolt on stage. Uh, so, um, uh, so one of the questions with Charleston is what what. What difference does it make that to have a play like Orinoco or the Beggar's Opera or um, some of the other plays I discussed there, including um, um, Davenant, Dryden and Davenant's adaptation of um, The Tempest, 
um, which is called the Enchanted Island. Um, what difference does it make to have those performed in Charleston instead of in London? And I think it makes a big difference. Um, and it makes a big difference because the whole question about the, the relation of um, what it means to perform uh, racialized bodies on stages changes tremendously when you have a different audience and you have a, a, a audience with different racial relations among it. So um, critics and, and historians have largely taken for granted that, that, that um, blacks did not attend the theater in Charleston. And um, I was really interested and excited to find that there's plenty of evidence that that's incorrect. So there were laws on the books that prevented um, both free blacks and enslaved blacks from attending the theater. But I found um, multiple iterations of letters to the editor complaining about the fact that there were too many blacks in the theater. Um, and one of the, one of the most persuasive to me is a, is a letter complaining that um, a letter to the editor saying, I went to the theater last night and I saw 60 blacks, um, more than 60, more than 60 people of color is the term used um, at the theater. And then he complains that the actors seem to be performing in particular to, um, uh, to that segment of the audience, which means that, um, uh, that, that blacks in the audience were, were not only there, they were there in significant numbers and they were there in ways that the town, the audience, and the performers were recognizing. So they were, um, they were performing as a part of the collective of the community at the theater. Uh, so, um, so that will give you some of the sense that I'm, that I'm interested in there and then interested in, in Charleston. And then I focus in particular on the fact that, um, during the Haitian revolution, a lot of, um, white refugees, uh, plantation owners fled from Haiti to South Carolina, uh, in the, um, at the close of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. And, um, many of them brought with them their slaves. Um, uh, some did, some didn't. Um, and, uh, they did many of these people had no way to make a living <laughs> because they didn't speak French and they didn't have their, uh, um, they didn't speak English and they didn't have their plantations. So um, it's interesting to look at the newspapers from that time because you see these displaced um, uh, French Creoles uh, trying to make a living offering French lessons, dancing lessons, um, uh, uh, sword um, uh, training, you know, in, in, uh, sword fighting and, um, music lessons, <laughs> all things that, all things that you don't need to speak English for. Um, and a French theater started at that time, um, by a, uh, cast of actors who had fled from, uh, Haiti and who performed to, um, not just to a French audience, but to an English audience as well. And, um, in order to perform to that audience, they largely performed pantomimes. Again, um, uh, a, a performance in which language was not important. So, um, and um, pantomimes are a completely, uh, utterly fascinating um, form of 
uh, theater that is very hard to trace, but was was very prominent at the time. Um, they're hard to trace because they often didn't have scripts, right? Because they're they're sort of these um, non linguistic or a linguistic, as I call them, performances. Um, but they are very adaptable to the a given audience. Um, they're 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 almost have a kind of newsreel quality to them because they they a basic plot gets adapted again and again and again to any circumstance. Um, so they have a very of the minute quality to them. Um, so the um, French theater started doing these pantomimes and then the English theater, they were so popular that the English theater started doing more and more pantomimes as well. And many of these pantomimes um, seem to have direct relationship to the issues of slave revolt that were going on at the time. Um, so one of the pantomimes that I spend a fair amount of time looking at is the um, a pantomime of Robinson Crusoe, uh, that is um, that I argue is also related to these uh, versions of the tempest. This question of how is it that you um, how is it that colonialism unfolds? And obviously, Charleston is a is a location where um, that question has huge uh, bearing for the collective um, gathering and being performed there. Yeah, it's really interesting to think of the theater then as a kind of medium, right, where all of these things are being played out and discussed and and reacted to. Um, I want to talk about Kingston because I want to talk about noise. <laughs> and um, noise is really important in the chapter, right? And so it, it works as a kind of metaphor and as actual noise, right, especially in the descriptions of this um, theatrical genre called Jean Canu. And for me, that was really fascinating. But it also, I, I thought it was interesting that it, methodologically, it allows you to make an argument about the ways that, and as you say, enslaved people fashioned from the denuded materiality of their lives, rich modes of signification. So that it's really about creativity and reconstruction in the way that Paul Gilroy talks about the ways that enslaved people who were denied literacy turned to music as acts of cultural creation. Right. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how Jean Canu allows you to make those arguments. Sure. Um, so Jean Canu is a performance that um, took place and still takes place today, actually, in Jamaica around the Christmas holidays. And it's a performance tradition in which um, uh, free and enslaved Africans um uh, perform plays, perform dances, um, and uh, um, songs, um, and there are uh, fixed characters in it. There are also the the dances of the so-called set girls, um, which occur at the same time as uh, as John Canoe. And the there's been a lot of scholarly work done on John Canoe um, uh, and about the. The, the fact that it's a, a performance tradition with with African roots, um, and uh, and and a lot of the work has been at, about the question of African retention um, versus um, a kinds of Creole um, versions of it. And uh, my my interest is really in the um, Creole version of it, uh, in, in particular because many of the accounts of Jean Canu. Um, which, which are completely fascinating, 
talk about um, the enslaved actors who perform portions of uh, English plays. So including um, Richard III, including um, uh, the Fair Penitent. So the idea that um, uh, that you have on the one hand a kind of um, uh, African performance tradition into which are folded um, scenes from Richard III um, is complete was completely fascinating to me um, and and very exciting. Um, the the so looking more at John Canoe, um, I well, there's so much to sh- say. It's a little bit uh, hard to know where to start. But um, <clears throat> the the let me start with the um, figure on the cover of the book um, of New World Drama, which is the figure of um, this is a drawing by an artist named Isaac Belisario, who was a Jewish painter who lived in Jamaica. And it's a painting of a figure known as Actor Boy, who, um, again, was a John Canoe, part of the John Canoe parade slash performance troupe um, uh, that would take place, that would perform around Christmas time. And the Actor Boy, so this Actor Boy is dressed in this spectacular, lavish costume um, that includes, and it's it's fascinating because it has a kind of... um, gender indeterminacy as well as a racial indeterminacy. So he's wearing um, uh, a huge head of curls that are both, um, uh, that are both dark brown and uh, a lighter brown. Um, I wouldn't say blonde, but, but a, a kind of lighter brown, this enormous plumed headdress, a kind of Mardi Gras figure, a long skirt with ruffles in pink, um, gloves, and then a white face mask that he has lifted up. Um, now, one of the arguments that that are, is often made by European writers at the time is to kind of make fun of the John Canoe performers as imitating European dress and as as performing poor imitations. Uh, for instance, poor imitations of Shakespeare. Right? The the so the account of Richard III is all about how. Um, Richard III is slaughtered and then he stands up and starts dancing around again. And isn't this funny that, um, uh, how, how poorly this is done. Um, but my, um, my interest was in taking the John Canoe much more, um, not as a poor imitation, but for, for, for its own mode of performance. Um, and what I argue is that the, um, if we think of uh, a colony like Jamaica as a space in which the plantocracy seeks to enforce a technology of social death, that is an effort to destroy the language, the genealogy, the natality, the sociality of enslaved peoples in order to extract their labor alone, what I call bare labor rather than bare life, the construction of bare labor is a is an effort to um, eradicate the social world of enslaved people peoples. Um, so John Canoe was a form of performance that I think flies in the face of the uh, prescription 
um, they attempt to enforce social death um, on on the enslaved popu- population in Jamaica. And even though European authors typically define it as a form of failed imitation of, of European dress, European dance, European theater. Um, I think I argue that we can understand it in its own terms as being actually about the production of culture um, under the shadow of social death. So instead of being an effort to imitate uh, European culture or even an effort to um, uh, uh, reproduce African culture, um, that in fact it's a specific kind of aesthetic flourishing at the very site of um, where enslaved peoples have been told that um, they are not allowed to have that kind of social uh, belonging, community, and flourishing. So um, one of the things, if, to return to the cover of the book, the extravagance of the actor boy figure is an extravagant presencing. Um, uh, he is fully there. He is gorgeous. He is um, displaying his presence in no uncertain terms in the same way when the John Canoe actors perform Richard III and Richard III is slain and then comes to life again. I don't see that as a failure to perform Richard III, but a reinvention of that narrative as a kind of recovery from death, as a as a reemerging in uh, a new form um, from the uh, attempted um, social death. So, uh, one of the things that is really fascinating to me about uh, Jamaica is that it is, in many ways, um, the scene of the kind of harshest regime of slavery, the the scene of the the greatest amount of um, literal death and social death, uh, but also the site of this incredible flourishing of an Atlantic, Afro-Atlantic culture in that site. And John Canoe is um, a kind of fascinating example of that. Yes, and I really like the way you do that through a description of uh, the gestures and the music, but also the clothing. And one of the things that really struck me as we move to the chapter on New York is the contrast between the figure of Jim Crow and this figure of John Canoe. And you even do talk about the clothing. Uh, But I wonder if you could talk about Jim Crow and and the way you use that figure to sort of argue about the move away from an Atlantic imaginary to a a more American nationalist imaginary. Yes. So I take Jim Crow um, in contrast to two other figures, one would be the John Canoe actor boy, and the second would be Orinoco, um, both of whom I've kind of traced on the stage in other chapters. So um, Orinoco is, uh, I take to be an Atlantic performance figure. Um, Jim Crow, on the other hand, is a kind of degraded, um, uh, nationalized version of that same figure. Um, so Orinoco in the, in the play, in the novel and in the play, Orinoco, um, is a prince from Africa who is brought into slavery in the New World. Um, Jim Crow, on the other hand, is, um, unlike this Atlantic tradition where, um, Orinoco is literally crossing the Atlantic in the space of that narrative. Jim Crow is, um, according to biographies that are written of him, these are faux biographies, obviously, 
actually faux autobiographies. Um, <laughs> he is uh, born in Kentucky, and he is um, uh, and he describes himself as as um, the blackest uh, slave. Um, on the plantation from um, old Kentuck. And so one of the things I argue is that there's a way in which this degraded figure of Jim Crow um, serves to um, uh, kind of mask or rewrite this Atlantic history in which you have figures like African princes um, and uh, an Atlantic history of that figure and turn it into a national history. So it um, becomes a question of moving from the south to the north, not a question of moving from Africa to Suriname um, or to London. Um, and the um, figure of Jim Crow also rewrites the figure of the John Canoe actor boy, um, uh, who I read as a figure of the black dandy, the John Canoe actor, um, Jim Crow is a kind of degraded black dandy. He's paired in blackface minstrelsy with Zip Coon, who is the pretentious, um, again, the pretentious imitator, failed imitator of white culture. And Jim Crow, um, if you look at his clothing, it's interesting that he is dressed in rags, but the rags are um, the rags of fancy clothes. They're not the Osnaburg that the, which was the kind of rough burlap clothing that slaves were typically dressed in in both the U.S. South and the Caribbean. Instead, he has on the clothing of a dandy. So he has on um, uh, striped uh, stockings. He has a cravat. He has a jacket um, that are all ripped up. So there's a way in which I um, I think you can almost visually read Jim Crow as a kind of um, uh, figure who's been taken from this Atlantic world and then degraded, revised, and downgraded into um, someone who has lost this complex um, and interesting history and instead is just the back the blackest slave from Kentucky who is attempting to get above himself um, and failing to do so. Yeah, and uh, one, of, one of the things I really like about this book is the way that it gives us new languages and new ways to think about these figures that have been imagined and written about separately, but once you put them up, up against each other, um, all, all kinds of things emerge. So uh, I think that that's a great contribution that this book makes. So we've taken up a lot of your time already, and um, I wonder if we can just close with you talking a little bit about the website that is, I think, related to this project, or maybe you can tell us about the origins of it, the, the Early Caribbean Digital Archive. Yes, so um, thank you for those comments, um, first of all. I, I do think that one of the... Um, uh, one of the things that, that emerged for me in writing in this book and one of the things that I hope that emerges for readers is is really how a different geography of culture changes um, what that culture looks like. So uh, when you put Jim Crow next to um, Orinoco or next to um, uh, Actor Boy, it, it really is a different story. Um and uh, um, and I and I want that that history and story to be um, 
to be seen or to be um, to be heard as well. The um, blackface minstrelsy, of course, there's been an awful lot written about that. One of the things that's interesting about blackface minstrelsy is that it's sometimes called the first Native uh, American culture, right? Like like the blues or right. um, blackface minstrelsy. Right. And again, I think that looks very different when you put it in an Atlantic context. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, to move to the early Caribbean digital archive, um, that is a uh, project that I've been working on at Northeastern University with a with a fabulous team of people there. Um, I have a co-director who is a colleague, Nicole Aljo, um, and uh, two graduate student um, project directors whose names I should mention because they've been so instrumental, Benjamin Doyle and Elizabeth Hopwood. Um, we are putting together a, a digital archive of early Caribbean texts and images, partly because um, the archives of the Caribbean are difficult to uh, find and to access because the Caribbean is a location that has been fractured by a history of imperialism. And the archive has been fractured by a history of imperialism as well. So if you want to study, for instance, um, colonial Saint-Domingue, it's often the case that you maybe uh, find better resources going to Aix-en-Provence, for Jamaica, going to the British Library, uh, for um, uh, Spanish colonies going to Seville, um, because those are colonial archives. And there are archives in the Caribbean, but they are often um, tremendously under-resourced. Uh, so one of the things that we're trying to do is, is to bring materials together and ask the question, what would it look like if these Caribbean materials were networked in relation to one another rather than in relation to a history of empire, of imperialism? Uh, and we have some very ambitious plans about ways of using the possibilities of digital technology to kind of think about generating new ways of of thinking about the archive and new ways of understanding that history that are not um, centered through imperial eyes, as it were. Um, So we're we're just getting up and running, but we're very eager to have that be a, um, what we call a a laboratory as well as a um, archive. Um, so if people go to ecda.project.org, um, we'll, we're, we're planning for, um, we have a site up there now, but it's not where we'd like to be. Um, but we're hoping by May of, uh, 2015 that, um, we will have more materials there and that scholars can use that as a location to, um, uh, talk about text, talk to one another, annotate texts. Um, put text in relationship to one another and in map texts in new ways. Um, briefly, one of the first projects that we're doing is pulling together uh, in conjunction with a special issue of the journal Atlantic Studies on the topic of Obia. We are um, pulling together a set of kind of core texts that deal with Obia in Jamaica. Um, and one of the nice things about the digital aspect of it is that we we are going to be able to reproduce those texts which appear in, for instance, in Benjamin Mosley's um, tract on sugar and agricultural text, in the parliamentary records, um, in historical records. Obia often appears as a very small 
portion of that uh, kind of embedded within these larger texts on, on diverse topics written by uh, Europeans. So we'll be able to have both those full texts up there and then extract the OB portions of them to create something of an anthology of texts about OBIA, which currently doesn't exist. Um, we'll be able to have both the extracts and still have those texts remain visible in their context since we can have both the full text and the extracts at the same time. So that's one of the ways that the digital nature of the archive is, I think, uh, opening new possibilities for us to read these texts and read them in a new set of relations that we haven't been able to see before. Yeah, it's a terrific project, and I can see it appealing to all sorts of different constituencies. So I will look forward to the development of it and and keep an eye out for it. Thanks so much for talking to me, Elizabeth. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, My pleasure. Thank you so much for, um, for giving me this opportunity. Thanks for listening to New Books in Latin American Studies. See you next time.